Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. By any measure, Eric Holder is a historic figure, uh, a career prosecutor. He's held a number of important positions and played a role in a number of important cases. Uh, but he'll best be remembered as the first African-American attorney general of the United States and a very consequential attorney general uh, on issues of civil rights and liberties, security, and on a range of issues that define our times. In addition to all that, he's an alumnus of my high school, Stuyvesant High School uh, in New York, which gives him a special status. I sat down with General Holder the other day on his visit to the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, and here's that conversation. Eric Holder, you and I have led uh, somewhat parallel lives in that we both grew up in New York City in the 1960s. Yep. We're both graduates of the same high school. Greatest Stuyves- high school in the world. Stuyvesant, Stuyvesant high, high school. school. Yes. That will, that, that will not substitute for a word from the sponsor, but nonetheless, we will, we will uh, give our high school its due. But um, I- I'm interested in what growing up in New York was like for you uh, in the 60s, a really volatile mm-hmm. Uh, time in New York City was kind of a fulcrum of a lot of that volatility. W- what do you? What are your memories of those days growing up in New York? Well, I grew up in a place called East Elmhurst in Queens, and uh, it's an interesting neighborhood in that um, it was the home for a, not, a lot of uh, notable black folks. Um, Louis Armstrong lived mm. in the neighborhood. Willie Mays lived down on Dittmar's Boulevard, and significantly, I lived on 101st Street. On 97th Street lived Malcolm X. Ah. And uh, I remember in 1963, I guess it was, I was 12, after Ali won the, the championship. Uh, we were at a candy store. My brother came in and said, Cassius Clay is at Malcolm X's house. We ran over there, and um, he stood out in front of Malcolm X's house. And I could see Malcolm, you know, in, in the background. And uh, me being who I was, I asked him, I said, so were you scared at the weigh-in? Because there was all these reports that <laughs> Clay was really scared. At in the, the fight with Sonny Liston. With Sonny Liston. Sonny, Sonny Liston would have scared me. Well, yeah. And um, I'm, I don't know, 12, so I don't know how tall I am, skinny kid. And he's the, like the largest human being I think I'd <laughs> ever seen. He balls up his fist, puts it forward, and puts it right in my face and says, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, oh, I think you're okay. You know? <laughs> but I got his autograph, which my mother subsequently uh, threw away. But so that Listen, East Elmhurst was... That's another way in which we have parallel lives. <laughs> but it was an interesting neighborhood to, to, to grow up in. Um, I had that, that, that knowledge of Malcolm's presence. And I think probably the most um, influential book I've ever read was the autobiography of, uh, of Malcolm X. Why? Why? Because it showed... It's a powerful book. It was... But it showed the transition of, of a guy from, um, you know, street thug um, to 
uh, a person afflicted um, by race to a, a really negative degree who grows to understand that um, people are essentially people and that you should judge folks um, as individuals, not based on their race, based on their religion. That trip to Mecca, you know, had such an such an impact on him. And um, I saw in his, his growth um, potential. And um, he's always been somebody who I thought was... Um, you know, somebody I, I like to emulate, you know, to take people as they are. I remember uh, when he was assassinated mm-hmm. uh, in Harlem uh, in 65. Yep. Um, you must have, that must have been, a, it was stunning to me because it was big news, obviously, in New York. And it added to this sense that things were yeah. happening, that that there were these horrible impulses out there. What, what, but how did it hit you as someone who was a neighbor and yeah. who was influenced by his writing and so on? Yeah, it was it was tough. You know, um, he was a person who was in transition uh, at that point, and I didn't know all of the— tra- Some people feel that's why he was killed. I think that's absolutely right. I don't think there's any question about mm-hmm. that. Um, I had not read the book, you know, by then, as I remember. Um, but he was a person I had grown to admire. Uh, and it was also interesting because my parents, who were— lived in New York for a long time and talked about the Audubon Ballroom as a place where they used to go and dance. And that having been the site for his assassination, combined with, you know, my knowledge of him, the firebombing of his house in East Elmhurst, um, all it, it, it seemed personal to me in a way that it might not have seemed to, uh, to other people. And um, what, are, what was your sense of um, the position of african-americans at that time um you had con- you know malcolm represented one strain mm-hmm. of leadership martin luther king represented another right. uh strain of leadership what was your what was your sense of the status of african-americans at that time you know it's interesting because i was trying to figure this all out i mean to my father the two greatest black men um were joe lewis and jackie robinson you know, you could say nothing negative about them in, in his presence. Uh, you then you had Dr. King, you had Malcolm X, you had the rise of black consciousness and the whole black power movement. Um, and for a young guy growing up in New York in a pretty conservative West Indian family, uh, I was trying to figure this all out. You know, where did where did I fit? Um, as opposed to, you know, my dad who thought, you know, Black Panthers, Black Consciousness. I mean, this was inconsistent with his immigrant view of the of America and how grateful um, immigrant people, Black folks, should be. Even though you know he'd been discriminated against. I always find this interesting. He'd been discriminated against while he was in the army, while he was in uniform in North Carolina and in Oklahoma. Um, told he had to get to the back of a, a train, had to walk around uh, to get to the back of a place where he was trying to buy lunch. Um, but among the most patriotic people I think, mm. you know, I've ever known. And so I was trying to, you know, a, a guy who I admire, he's, you know, my, I guess my ultimate mentor, to somehow square that man and his views with my own sense that um, things were not as good as he had um, described them. And seeing very, you know, in very visible terms, you know, Stokely Carmichael, um, Malcolm X, um, you know, the Panthers. Oh, Did they speak to you, the, those young sort of, uh, I guess then we would say more militant, but yeah. uh, leaders, did they did they speak to you as a young man? Yeah, they made me question things. Um, 
frankly question things that I guess my father, in, as I said, in his West Indian conservative way, mm-hmm. had instilled in me. It made me question things that I don't really think came to, I uh, say, fruition maybe until I was in college, where, uh, you know, I'm not living at home in anymore. Columbia University. Columbia University. I'm in New York. You stayed in New York, though. Yeah. Did you stay in New York to be close to your family, or why did you, because you went to Columbia not just in college, but in law school as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I, I got down to, I was trying to decide if I was going to go to Brown or to Columbia, and my father said, no, where would you want to spend your college years, in Providence, Rhode Island, or in New York? <laughs> it's a pretty New good York. argument. Yeah. And I said, all right, on that one thing, I said, all right, you, you've got the better of the <laughs> argument, so I stayed in, in New York. Um, but See, I had a homeroom teacher. I don't know if you ever had this guy at Stuyvesant High School, Jerry Liebner. His name was a physics teacher. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm just going to give you one bit of advice when you're choosing a college. He said, get out a protractor, draw a circle around the city of New York, and choose a school at least 600 miles away. Because if you do that, your parents will never surprise you with a visit. (laughs) So I thought that was a bit of wisdom, you know, that I took with me. That's how I ended up at the University of Chicago. Yeah. No, I I wanted to stay in the city. um, And I'm glad that I did. I lived in Queens. So that was, was, you know, there's a whole river between Manhattan and and Queens. And I used to go home on... uh, Sunday evenings and clean out the refrigerator. You know, father <laughs> pissed him off um, and take everything back to Columbia with me. But it was, uh, it was, it was a good. I stayed close to them. You know, we were a pretty small. You know, we were a small nuclear family. We were very tight. Uh, West Indian tight. And um, now Columbia was a pretty lively campus. Uh, okay. You got there. You got there when in sixty nine seventy. Yeah, in sixty eight. Wasn't it sixty eight when Mark Rudd? Right. Uh, led demonstrations there, anti-war demonstrations there. Right. It, it was a it was a real hotbed of activism. I didn't take final exams at Columbia until my junior year. We were always on strike. We were protesting, I guess, Nixon's invasion of Cambodia, then the shootings, I guess, at Kent State, uh, Jackson State. Um, and I remember junior year, they said, you know, you know you're not going to have the option of taking your midterm grade or writing a paper. You're actually going to have to take finals. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> we don't do this at, 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 at Columbia. But no, it was still a place where um, the tactical police force, I don't know if you remember that, was come, would come on campus when we had demonstrations. It was, uh, it was a lively, lively place. And you decided to stay to go to law school there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what made you decide to go to law school? <laughs> law school for me was what I came to call the haven for the undecided. Um, I graduated from college with a degree in American history and thought, all right, what can I do with this? People said, well, you could teach. Eh, I didn't think I wanted to do that. Wise decision. Um, and people said, well, you know, if you go to law school, you can do a lot with a, a legal degree. And I thought, all right, perfect. Another three years, I won't have to decide really what I want to do. But surprisingly, I guess in my first year, I had a, a criminal law course with a guy, taught by a guy named Telford Taylor, who was a Nuremberg yeah, prosecutor. Sure. And uh, that really turned me around. And I decided I had an interest in um, criminal law and made me decide I really wanted to be a, a lawyer. But I didn't go to law school with the thought that I wanted to be a, to be a lawyer. And, you're, and you went from law school to the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this was an interesting time in American history to go to the Justice Department right. because the country had just come through Watergate, and in which the Attorney General quit, several other high-ranking members of the Justice Department quit rather than uh, essentially participate in a cover-up right. uh, for Richard Nixon. So the level of public um, uh, doubt mm-hmm. about the integrity of the public of the Justice Department and the justice system was very high. And you went to work 
in the Public Integrity Unit. Mm -hmm. So what caused you to do that? Well, you know, it was interesting. Um, it was a unit that had been created by uh, Richard Thornburg, I guess who was head of the criminal division at right. the time. And it was future, an out outgrowth. Future attorney general, future right. governor of Pennsylvania. Exactly. And it was an outgrowth of the um, Watergate scandal. They decided to put in place within the Justice Department a unit that would look at public corruption cases at the federal, state, and local levels. And I thought to myself, all right, you know, I'm, I'd like to do that. And, I, and I, the plan was I was going to go to D.C. for two, three years, because I took the New York bar. I was always going to go back to New York, you know, the center of the universe, center yes. of my life. And uh, I just never made it Never made it back, stayed in the public integrity section for 12 years. We're at the University of Chicago, uh, where you're going to speak to a mm -hmm. group of uh, students uh, in a little while. Um, Edward Levy was the president of the University of Chicago, and he was essentially drafted by Gerald Ford, a guy of complete probity, uh, to come and become attorney general right. after uh, after Watergate. Mm -hmm. What was the tone in the Justice Department then? And did, did Levy give you guys in the Public Integrity Union a sense that uh, what you were doing was, was a, a priority? Yeah. I mean, Levy is a towering figure in the Justice Department. I don't think people outside the department necessarily understand that. Um, the attorney general has the ability to put four portraits up in his... Um, conference room. And the four people I had were um, Jackson, Elliot Richardson, who had been fired by Nixon, yes. Levy, and uh, Robert Kennedy. Um, Levy restored the Justice Department. Uh, he brought the department back to where um, it should have been, where it always must be. Um, he was a no-nonsense um, person with a, a real sense of integrity, and you felt it within the Justice Department, though I never met him. Um, you know, didn't get to meet the Attorney General yeah. when you were a lowly um, line prosecutor. Um, but, you know, you, you got from the fifth floor of the Justice Department the sense that um, there was a, sp a specific way, an appropriate way to do things. You, you stayed there for 12 years mm -hmm. in the Public Integrity Union. You could have left at any time. Yeah. Uh, you obviously liked the work. Yep. Yeah, I really like the work. I, you know, it's, it's interesting to be a, a prosecutor who uh, deals with people who commit, as we call, street crimes. You know, that's one thing. But to deal with people who um, had been given all the benefits that a society could give, given great power by um, our nation, and then who abused that power. I didn't have any second thoughts about um, bringing cases against um, those folks, and I tried cases as far east probably as Philadelphia and as far west as Guam. One of the cases in Philadelphia was Abscam, was it not? Mm -hmm. Yep, we, I was involved with Abscam, yep. That was actually the, the, with the New Jersey component of, uh, of Abscam. Yeah, yeah. What was? Uh, tell me about that case just for a second, because obviously it's now been immortalized in in film as well as uh, in, 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 in books and embedded in history. But what was it like to be a part of that when you saw that case evolving, when you heard the tapes and yeah. so on? Well, I was at the public integrity section, and one of the lawyers in um, our unit was responsible for the prosecution of John um, Jenrette. Um, so I was, you know, peripherally involved in that one and then was assigned with the same guy, Reed Weingarten, to look at some of the New Jersey um, abscam cases. And uh, we looked at Mayor Angelo Arichetti. We had a state senator in New Jersey. Um, it was it, it was a fascinating thing to see both how the FBI had set up the scam and then how people in various parts of government, the state, local levels, uh, as well as the federal levels, responded to it. It was, it was kind of shocking to see... Um, people more than willing to take these uh, take these bribes. I remember one of the figures was Harrison 
Williams. Harrison Williams, senator who was from a New senator from New Jersey, yeah. who was a revered figure. My, yeah. my mother's family was from New Jersey. Harrison Williams was thought to be the par- a paragon of right. virtue. That was a shock. I mean, we know as the reports come back that um, political figure X took the money. You'd say, wow, that, okay, that's interesting. And then Harrison Williams was X. He was the person who, you know, who took the money. And that was, uh, that was a shock. And, and, and it was, in a lot of ways, maybe more sad than the other ones, um, because he was a person I always thought of as, um, you know, an old line, um, almost a Brahmin kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he proved to be no better than, you know, a lot of the other politicians in New Jersey. What do you, I mean, it may, this may be an obvious question, but... Since we're talking about him, you've prosecuted a lot of corruption cases. I want to talk about one other in a second, seeing as how we're in mm-hmm. Chicago later on. Mm-hmm. But um, what is it? Is it just pure greed? Is it need? Is it what? What? What goes through the or is it power that that ultimately corrupts and the money is sort of incidental? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's people get used to power and they think that the rules don't apply to them. Uh, I don't think they necessarily start out as corrupt. Some do. Um, but I think many um, have had these positions for so long that they lose touch with the real world. And there's a sense of entitlement that I think they have to use their staffers to do things that they shouldn't, to take money that they that, that they shouldn't. Um, I, I, I think that's really what kind of leads them, leads many of them um, down, you know, these, these bad paths. Years later, uh, you, uh, after serving uh, in, as a judge in the District of Columbia, you became the U.S. attorney there, mm-hmm. and you prosecuted someone Chicagoans knew well, Dan, Dan Rostenkowski. Yep. But as prominent as he was in Chicago, he was even more prominent in Washington as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, probably mm-hmm. one of the two or three most powerful men in Congress mm-hmm. and in Washington. Um, how hard was it to, to, to tackle that case, given the power and the stature of, uh, of Rostenkowski? Well, it was interesting because I started out replacing my Republican predecessor, and there was all this concern that somehow, someway, this democratically appointed U.S. attorney was going to tank this case, which was never going to happen, but we had to first deal with that. Rostenkowski was also um, a huge figure in that first attempt to get health care um, done by, by the Clintons. Yes. And so that was, you know... I was asked by uh, friends in the, in the White House to help him in his primary campaigns in 92 mm-hmm. and 94 because, uh, uh, well, 92 uh, was before that uh, campaign, but that was more uh, uh, for, the, for the mayor. But mm-hmm. the Clinton White House really wanted to see Rostenkowski return to Congress because he was a big ally mm-hmm. in, in, on health care and other issues that passed through this very important committee. Yeah, and it was... Uh I remember but it was the Clinton. You you were part of the Clinton Justice Department, but I had a job to do as right. uh, as the U.S. Attorney. Um, the evidence was was clear. Um, the way in which he had misused his office was clear, and uh, we had good proof. And so I remember when we went out, when I went out to announce the uh, the bringing of the indictment, I expected it to be you know a matter of interest. And I walked into the room, and there were so many microphones on the. Um, on the podium that I had no place to put my prepared remarks. And it, I, I was shocked that it was of uh, of truly national concerns. But again, it was the right thing to do based on the evidence that had been uh, that had been that had been put together. One of the core charges against him was that he 
He took, for example, postage stamps that were yeah. issued to congressmen, and he cashed them in for right. cash and kept the cash as walking around money. And one of the things that you heard, not as an excuse so much as an explanation, uh, was that these things were kind of commonplace in the 50s when he came to Washington. The mores had changed, mm-hmm. but he hadn't. Yeah. I mean, is there anything to that? I mean, it, it might have been. I, I, I tell you that we were not focused on what old practices um, were like. We were focused on the way in which people in Congress were conducting themselves at the time. We did not see any evidence, because we looked to see who was misusing the House Post Office, any other evidence that other congressmen were doing things, um, either to the extent that Rostenkowski had or in the way that Rostenkowski had. He stood out, and that was the reason why um, bringing up charges against him uh, I thought was appropriate. I have to tell you that when I was working for him, it was such a such an interesting contrast, because on the one hand, um, this guy was involved in Medicare and some of the mm-hmm. tax reform, some of the major issues of our time. And he was the greatest storyteller ever. Mm-hmm. So you felt like every time you sat down with him, he'd regale you with stories right. of his, you know, that were historic and gripping. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I walked to his headquarters uh, one day uh, when he was running for re-election 94, which he ultimately, where he lost his seat, you indicted him Mm -hmm. in the midst of it. This was before the indictment, but I walked in and he looked around and he said, did you see him out there? And I said, who? He said, the G, you know, they're everywhere. And it was like, here's a guy who, on the one hand, reached the absolute heights, and on the other hand, was acting like uh, a, a, a common criminal. And it was a, I have to tell you, it was, it was sad. Yeah, no, it was a no. That was a that was actually a pretty sad case to bring. There are some public officials um, that I brought charges against who really had really just gamed the system and had done really evil things and had no history behind them. Um, You know, relatively new to whatever positions they had. Rostenkowski, by contrast, as you just said, had a history of really positive things that he had done for um, this country, and to really bring charges against him for what were not petty, but not major, um, you know, instances of, of corruption was, was was kind of sad. I think that it was appropriate to bring the case, but it was sad that uh, that it had to be brought. You were the first African American Attorney General. What did what did that mean to you uh, when when the president asked you to serve in that office? Well, you know, I thought that I was um, qualified to be. Um, You've been general. the deputy attorney general. I'd been the deputy attorney general. Had served in a number of positions in the uh, in the Justice Department, so I thought I was qualified to be AG. Um, but I think I really underestimated the impact of being the first African American attorney general. When I would go to uh, to churches, to community meetings, um, give speeches, um, it was um, a heartwarming thing to have older black folks come up to me and say, you know, kind of touch me on my sleeve and say, you know, never thought that I'd see a black man as attorney general and as president. Um, they kind of coupled the, the, the two of us. And I, I began to realize that um, my appointment, obviously significant personally, um, had a resonance in the black community that I thought, you know, maybe had, we had gotten beyond. And um, I was brought back to that pretty quickly in my, in my time as, uh, as AG. Your wife Sharon's family has a place right. in American, uh, in the history of American civil rights as well. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, well, there's an interesting connection. Um, I was Deputy Attorney General. Um, Vivian Malone, who was uh, 
Sharon's sister has now passed, was the young black woman who integrated the University of Alabama in 1963 with the George Wallace stand in the schoolhouse door. She was escorted to uh, the University of Alabama by Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach, whose portrait was in my personal uh, office. And I got to know Nick later in life when we served on a corporate board together before actually I met Sharon. And uh, all of this just kind of came together. Um, Nick was the deputy who escorted Vivian. I married Vivian's uh, sister, Sharon. So uh, she's, uh, as I like to say, she's civil rights royalty. You, um, you, in your first months in, uh, as attorney general, you made a speech in which uh, you uh, said we were essentially a nation of cowards on race. And as you know... That created a big to-do back at the White House. You guys loved that speech. You yeah. all loved that speech. I, I, I loved it. I just thought, couldn't he make it eight <laughs> years from now? Does he have to make it right now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I, but, I'm, but I'm interested now uh, in talking a little bit about that and, and what you meant by that and where, and, and where you think we are today. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think people focused too much on that one phrase without reading that, the— that's what, that's what happens, you know. Yeah, yeah, without reading the entirety of the speech. And it was really an optimistic view of uh, where the nation was and where the nation was going to be in terms of uh, race. And the, 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 the phrase was really about our inability to talk to one another, um, that black folks and white folks um, found good ways to avoid talking about race. I actually think that— um, this presidency has done an awful lot to make the speech that I made in 2009, well, or maybe inoperative. We, as a country, I think, talk about race a lot more because of uh, Barack Obama's presidency. People oftentimes say, I hear, you know, race relations are not as good as they were in the past. Well, you know what? You know, race relations, if you look at it from a certain perspective, were pretty good in the 50s, unless you happen to be African-American. You know, race relations weren't that great. And I think this presidency, maybe my time as attorney general, have surfaced a lot of issues that for too long uh, we have avoided. And they're painful issues. Um, We're real adept as a society in avoiding these painful issues. But if we're ever going to get to the place that we say we want to be when it comes to race, we've got to talk about this stuff. We have to ask each other um, hard questions and face some really difficult truths. There are those who would argue that that Obama's presidency has... uh, Provoked a more more open discussion, but not always. Uh, but 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 sometimes a jarring discussion, and sometimes it evidences itself in uh, in, in jarring ways, such as the congressman who stood up at right. the uh, at the president's health care speech and shouted "You lie," mm-hmm. uh, something that had never been done to right. uh, other presidents, and some of the things that uh, uh, that we've heard in the presidential race uh, this year. You seem to be saying that's actually a sign of progress in that uh, we're we're surfacing issues that have always been there. Yeah, I think that's true to an extent. Um, I don't think that um, the way in which Donald Trump has conducted his campaign is necessarily something that's productive. Um, But raising issues that are— Do you think he is making uh, race-based appeals? Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, The fact that he questioned the legitimacy of uh, President Obama by questioning where he was born, what he has said about Mexicans, I think there is a race-based component to his campaign. I think he appeals um, too often to our the worst side of us as uh, as Americans. Now, there are some things that he says that I think he, he stumbles into truths every now and again, but I think that's too often surrounded by um, things that uh, go to our, our, our worst side. 
Um, you came to office at a time when the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department was um, was was in disrepute, or at least in in disrepair, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, no, I think you were right the first time: disrepute and disrepair. Mm-hmm. What tell tell me what you think? What talk about what you did, but also where you think we are today versus where we were when you walked in the door in uh, in uh, two thousand and nine. I mean, I think people tend to forget where the Civil Rights Division, um, specifically in the Justice Department, more generally was when we walked in in two thousand nine. Um, there had been all kinds of politicization of the department generally, and especially with regard to the Civil Rights Division. Um, I got from the White House the approval to do a lot of hiring that had not been How did the politicization manifest itself? Oh, in terms of the way in which the career people in the Civil Rights Division were shut out of making um, recommendations, decisions. Um, They didn't interact with the political appointees. The political appointees took upon themselves the ability to make calls in a way that never happened in the Justice Department. I served under Republican as well as uh, Democratic AGs, and they did things in the Civil Rights Division generally, the Justice Department uh, generally as well, um, that had never been done under Republican or Democratic um, AGs. And I was bound and determined to, to turn that around and to make the Civil Rights Division, which I consider in many ways the conscience of the Justice Department, um, all that it um, should be, all that it, that, that it was. What, let, let's take some of these areas, uh, voting rights, for mm-hmm. example. Um, you took a very hard line on some of the state actions uh, in terms of voter IDs and voting hours and so on. Uh, did what what were the motivations behind those? The, the, they would argue this was because of voter fraud. There isn't a whole lot of evidence of uh, voter fraud. These these are naked attempts. I mean, let's call this for what it is. There is no factual statistical proof that voter fraud exists to the extent that uh, these photo ID laws, these voter restriction laws. Um, should be put in place. And if there isn't, if there is fraud, what does shortening um, voting hours, cutting out voting on weekends, what does that have to do with fraud? These are, let's call them what they are. These are attempts to keep away from the polls. um, People who are not going to vote Republican, tend not to vote Republican, young people, um, people of color, um, older people at times in places, certain places. Um, It's really at best, a political attempt to keep people away from the polls. At worst, it um, goes to the darkest side of, uh, of the American political experience to try to exclude um, people of color from, uh, from, from the polls in ways that we had seen in the past, what poll taxes, literacy tests, and now we've got uh, these whole, this, this whole question of um, photo ID. Although, you know, you look at polls and people say, well, what is the uh, harm in asking people for uh, IDs. What is the harm in asking people? But for that's ID? what people tend to forget. There has always been an identification requirement when you came to vote. This notion of proving who you are has always been in our, our, our voting system. The problem is that these um, new laws are prescriptive in saying what exactly it is you have to show, and they are restrictive in uh, what they say is is appropriate. In Texas, for instance, if you come up with um, a concealed carry permit, 
that's acceptable. If you have a, Tex, a University of Texas a student ID, that's not acceptable. Now, what does that tell you about who they're trying to keep away, who, trying to, who they're trying to keep away from the polls? And yet, the Supreme Court uh, uh, sort of gutted big elements of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, and uh, and what I think is going to be seen as one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court um, has ever um, has ever entered. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at Justice Ginsburg's dissent. I think that has been shown to be true. The fact that, as she said, you know, you're not getting wet because you're standing in a rainstorm with an umbrella over your head doesn't mean that you can take away the umbrella. Uh, well, we took away the umbrella, and um, a lot of people are, are in fact, getting wet. And I'm very concerned about what the impact of this is going to be uh, in the 2016 presidential election. This is the first time we have tried to elect a president without the protection of the uh, the Voting Rights Act and these 21, 22 states or so um, where these new restrictions are in place and where you could suppress the vote 2, 3%, something like that, that may be something that is determinative of who wins the, who wins the state. You uh, mentioned this, or I mentioned the Supreme Court. Uh, Merrick Garland is someone who you who you know well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a fellow prosecutor at right. one time and you've, uh, you've, you've, witnessed him as a judge, as the chief judge of the D.C. Uh, appeals court, mm-hmm. D.C. circuit. What's your uh, estimation of him? He is um, unbelievably qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. I am. I, I have no doubt that he will be not a, a good justice. He will be a great one. I mean, if you listen to what— You make it sound like you, you're sure that he will be a justice. Well, you know, I, I my fingers are crossed that once the— uh, Republicans get past all of their primaries, um, and they're not worried about being primaried, um, that they will do the right thing to look at an extremely qualified um, judge who has shown himself to be a moderate um, and who was praised by Republicans you know, during his con- earlier confirmation processes and who is Chief Justice Roberts has said wonderful things about, um, that they'll simply do the right thing. Um, this president has the ability to... Uh, select a nominee given the amount of time that he had left in his uh, his presidency it is the responsibility of the senate to advise and consent and if they do and they do it on the merits there's no question that um, he'll be on the court if you were hillary clinton and were elected president would you uh, and the, they don't act this year would you like to see merrick garland reappointed i think merrick would be a great justice but i'll leave to you know President-elect uh, Clinton, the yeah, decision. you still have some moves, don't you? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see what, what what she wants to do with regard to uh, the nomination. That what she about would make. the list that Trump put out? Donald Trump put out of his potential Supreme Court nominees. Did you get a chance to review that? Yeah, I looked at it. Um, I know a couple of the judges. They're all, you know, very conservative. Um, I, I noted that uh, aside from uh, a bit of gender diversity, there was not any diversity of people of color. Um, so I, I guess uh, in some ways you're going to get from a President, uh, a president Trump um, a, a Supreme Court that does not have the kind of diversity that I think really helps the court in making um, decisions. I think the addition of uh, Sonia Sotomayor, um, Justice Kagan, the presence of um, uh, Justice Ginsburg, you know, helps the, the, the court decide issues. Um, what about ma- Justice Thomas? Well, you know, Justice Thomas brings his uh, 
diversity, I suppose, in, in, in some ways. In fact, he's an African-American man. Um, but I have to say that, you know, the decision that was rendered uh, just today um, with regard to the um, race-based selection of uh, a jury in a, in a in death a capi- penalty yeah, case. A capital and case. He had seven justices all saying it was inappropriate and only Justice Thomas saying that it was um, appropriate. Uh, really makes me... Um, <laughs> question, um, you know, what what motivates him, what moves him. And um, the case, it seemed to me, and I think the, the seven justices what was clear, and how he could not be in that in the majority in that case is, I think, kind this of dist- was, This disturbing. was about prosecutors uh, excluding black jurors in a, in a capital case right. involving a black, a black defendant. Right. And, and the proof was, was painfully clear. I mean, you know, the opinion— They had the notes of the— Right. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, cites, you know, the facts for the, uh, as the basis for the the court's majority opinion, and uh, how Justice Thomas could turn his back on on those facts. As an African-American man is, uh, is uh, I just find very confusing. On another confusing or... Disappointing, infuriating. Um, uh, another thing that you worked on was sentencing, mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, disparities in sentencing uh, in this country. Um, criminal justice reform is something that is now very much on the front, front of mind. Wh- where are we now as compared to where you, uh, when you came, and, and what is left to be done? Well, I mean, we used all the executive power that we had after I gave a speech in August of 2013 and announced this Smart on Crime initiative and changed a whole bunch of things within the uh, federal system. And we've seen now for the first time in 40 years a reduction in the federal prison population, while at the same time the federal, well, the the crime rate uh, has been, been going down. And we've seen a really kind of bipartisan— still are, We still are world leaders in incarceration. Oh. of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. We have more prisoners than China. We incarcerate at a rate greater than every other country in the world. The closest to us is Russia. We incarcerate about 700 per 100,000. Russia is about 500 per 100,000. So that's our nearest competitor, Putin's um, great Russia. Um, But we have a bipartisan um, notion of support for this this whole thing, this feeling of um, the need to reform our criminal justice system. It would seem to me that this is something where Republicans and Democrats have political cover. This is an easy vote for um, uh, for criminal justice reform, and yet I've now seen voices. Senator Cotton um, said we actually have an under-incarceration problem, uh, which is to me just totally baffling, and I think worries me a great deal because whenever you get politicians involved in criminal justice policy, you end up with what we saw in the war on drugs, where you had these draconian sentences they had little or nothing to do with the action that a particular um, defendant um, engaged in. There's been a lot of discussion during the course of this campaign about the, 90, uh, the 1994 crime bill. Um, and you were, I, I don't, you, you may not have been in the administration at the time that that... I was a U.S. attorney in D.C. Uh, was, were, were there elements of the 94 crime bill that were a mistake? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, the... The crime bill had some good things in it. You know, this whole note, a lot of prevention um, money was there. The Violence Against Women Act was part of the crime bill. But there were incentives given to the states to to build prisons. And um, if you, again, you know, um, that Kevin Costner movie, if you build it, they will come. Well, if you build prisons, they will be filled. And um, there was too much 
uh, federal incentives given to the states to build prisons, which I think resulted in the over-incarceration problem that we are now trying to uh, unwind. But I think people should not think that this over-incarceration problem is strictly tied to that 94 crime bill. Um, a lot of the mandatory minimum sentences that we saw and that are problematic occurred well before um, the crime bill happened in the Bush administration after the crime bill. And that disparity that we saw, that 100 to 1 disparity in powder and crack cocaine comes from the, um, from the Reagan administration. But the mandatory minimums relative to drugs uh, did accelerate that process. The crime bill doesn't do an awful lot with regard to mandatory minimums. I mean, those were in existence before, mm-hmm. and they get accelerated after the crime bill. But there were elements of the crime bill that were, um, I think, that were mistakes. The uh, we we see today. Oh, by the way, I, on the on the drug issue, I should ask you this: there was a, there was a lot of back and forth when you were attorney general about marijuana, mm-hmm. and you can see all across the country there's this movement toward de- decriminalization of marijuana. Um, you, you fought some of that when you were attorney general. Why? Well, I, I first said, I've said recently, and I th- certainly think it's true, that marijuana needs to be rescheduled. It is now seen in the federal system as as serious a drug as heroin, and that's clearly not uh, appropriate. Um, but I would take issue, I think, with the notion that we, we fought that in the sense that when it came to um, Colorado and Washington and their attempts to um, uh, loosen up their restrictions on the use of marijuana, we allowed them. Uh, after I spoke to the governors in both states and we set out what we thought were federal priorities, federal interests that would be implicated if they didn't do things in the way that they said, um, we said, all right, let's experiment. Let's see what happens in Colorado. Let's see what happens in Washington. Uh, we'll, we're not going to use our limited resources to go after people um, who are using marijuana for recreational purposes. Or it's created a problem there in terms of the financing and them yeah. people being able to get loans for their businesses right. and so on. What, what do you think about what you've seen so far? Well, I, you know, I, I still worry about the notion about um, people selling in those states, not having access to the banking system. That's almost inviting crime. Huge amounts of cash being held in safes um, in these in these uh, in these stores. So that's one thing that worries me. As best I can tell, the um, the governors have put up put in place these regulatory schemes consistent with what they said they were going to do. And I think it's a good thing for us as a nation to have this debate. You know, what are we going to do with uh, with marijuana? Um, is this something that we want to um, legalize, that we want to somehow tax? Um, this is a debate I think that is uh, it's worth having. I'm not going to ask you uh, your perspective on that as a guy who grew up in New York City in the 1960s. Instead, I'm going to move on to... Um, uh, Ferguson and the issue of police. You know, we, we're sitting in the city of Chicago. We've obviously had a, a, mm-hmm. a great deal of uh, controversy about police community, about police abuse of power in the community. We also have a huge crime problem, and you've been mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. to talk about that as attorney general. How do we reconcile these things? Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, dealing with um, these huge crime Problems, some of them drug-related in, in our communities, and um, uh, and the need for strong policing, and the need for civil liberties and a respect for people's civil rights. Yeah. How do you balance these things? Well, you see, I first think we first have to understand that there's not a tension between the notion of good policing and the respect for civil liberties. Um, good policing is respectful of civil liberties. Good policing is respectful of people's rights. Um, good policing is respectful of people. 
Um, you know, there have been studies shown that um, people who think that they have been treated appropriately by the police are more than more willing to accept mm-hmm. even a negative consequence from the interaction that they have with uh, with the with the police. You know, the vast majority of the of the cops on the beat do a great job. They just do, um, and the places that need police services the most are frequently places, communities of, of color. And the fact that there is that tension there, that erosion of trust, is something that for me is very disturbing. And one of the things I tried to do as attorney general was to um, be respectful of the job that police have, while at the same time understanding the historical concerns that existed in communities of color, and try to bring those uh, those groups together so that level of trust um, could exist. It's really nothing more than good law enforcement, because without that trust, people are less likely to um, tell the police right. about leads. And we've that seen they have. that. Yeah. We've seen that. We saw a young kid killed by gangbangers in an alley here, nine years old, assassinated because his father right. had uh, done something, and uh, it took weeks to solve that because people would were would not step forward. Right. Um, out of fear and 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 maybe uh, and maybe mistrust, and yet. You know, Jim Comey has suggested, the FBI director and uh, and others, frankly, that there is there is the danger of police sort of essentially going on strike yeah. and not. Uh, now, the president strongly resisted that. Uh, I presume you don't see that as well. The the so-called Ferguson effect. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, Jim Comey's a friend. We go back a long way. This is one thing I really violently disagree with him about. Um, he's essentially saying that police aren't doing their jobs as a result of, you know, what happened in Ferguson and in, in other places, Baltimore, other places. And I simply don't think that uh, that's true. We've seen a rise in violent crime in certain cities, not overall, but in certain cities. And I don't think that's a function of the police staying in their police cars and not getting out and doing the kinds of things that we expect um, police officers to do. And there's no statistical proof, as best I can see, that um, ties... Uh, what Jim has called, uh, or others have called, you know, the, the Ferguson effect in a rise in crime in any uh, any city. There, um, you you not only uh, dealt with these issues, but many many issues. One of them was uh, we came, it came to office in the midst of a of this uh, monstrous uh, financial crisis, economic crisis, triggered by uh, uh, to to a large degree by the manipulation on Wall Street of the mortgage Mortgage market. Um, And one of the criticisms of the president and of you is that that only one executive went to prison as a result of that. There were a thousand who went to prison during the savings and loan uh, crisis. So there there came this notion Mm -hmm. that if you're too too big to fail, you're too big to jail. Mm -hmm. Um, Why weren't more people prosecuted uh, during the... Mm-hmm. as a result of the financial crisis? Well, first off, I'd say that um, more people were prosecuted than people understand um, or give us credit for. But beyond that, I think there's... I mean, a you recovered a lot of money. I know that, yeah, yeah, $190 we had, we, right. we had billion record, dollars or something. That's kind of just cast aside. We, there were record-breaking settlements, you know, $13 billion from one institution, $16 billion from another. Um, but, but, but there's a fundamental question I think that people have to ask themselves. Um, do you, you actually think that if we could have brought these cases, we would not have, that Preet Bharara in 
New York, Loretta Lynch in Brooklyn. Well, talk about that. Why, why couldn't you? That, I, th- I think that's an important thing to discuss. Well, because, you know, we have responsibilities within the Justice Department only bring those cases that we think we have a better than 50% chance of, of winning. And if you look at the diffuse way in which decision-making was made within um, these financial institutions, we simply didn't have the ability to point to specific individuals and say, that person was responsible for this specific action. We simply didn't have the proof. If we could have made those cases, we certainly would have brought them. These would have been career-defining cases for assistant U.S. attorneys, uh, U.S. attorneys, even for you know an attorney general to bring. If we could have brought them, we would have. You understand, though, people's frustration sure. about that. Sure. I mean, I'm frustrated by that. Um, you know, although we got record-breaking um, monies from these institutions in connection with civil um, cases that we brought, and some civil cases that we brought against um, uh, against individuals, it would have been a much more satisfying thing to identify specific people uh, and put them in the criminal dock and hold them responsible in that way. It must be uh, frustrating to you personally, too, because we're sitting here talking about uh, people who don't have any means and who uh, may be the, the Sub, uh, subject to prosecution for the r- very wrong reasons, uh, who who go to prison for long periods of time, and then you have people who have literally been involved in toppling the economy, uh, who walk away uh, and pay little penalty. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why, as I was leaving the department, I called on Congress to change the levels of proof that we were required to. Um, to, to meet in order to bring these these kinds of cases, uh, to respond to that which we were unable to do in connection with the mortgage-backed securities um, um, issue, so that uh, if it happened in, in the future, future attorneys general, future assistant U.S. attorneys would have a much greater capacity to bring um, the cases. Does that Dodd Frank give you any more tools? gives us a few, um, but there are some specific things that I think we need with regard to some of the fraud statutes that we would have used um, uh, and some of the other financial statutes. Dodd-Frank is, is, is a, an excellent bill and gives us tools, but not necessarily the tools we would have used in connection with those cases. Another thing that comes up, the other thing that you were the attorney general at a time of war and at a time of uh, terrorism. And uh, so you had to deal with some very freighted issues about when, what the president's authority was and tools to fight that, mm-hmm. uh, be it uh, the, uh, at the NSA use of uh, drones and so on. We had uh, Edward Snowden here, in fact, Jeff Stone from the law school, who was on the NSA commission, the president's NSA commission, questioned him. We didn't actually have him here, I should hasten to say. I was going to say. He was here. (laughs) Yes. The FBI would have liked to have known about that. Yeah, right. But we, we, uh, he he, uh, he Skyped in. Mm -hmm. Um, How difficult were these issues of uh, that involved civil liberties on the one hand and security on the other. And how do you, how do you weigh those things? Yeah, I, I thought the president really put it best when he said, simply because we have the ability to do something doesn't necessarily mean that we should. Um, we had the capacity to do a whole range of things under these listening programs. Um, but after a while, uh, I remember sending memos to the president and asking, you know, do we really need to do this given the, um, the way in which we are focusing on people's lives, and given the return that we were getting, which was not, you know, I think in any ways substantial. And so I think that, um, you know, you can, we can certainly argue about the way in which Snowden did what he did, but I think that he actually um, 
performed a public service by raising the debate that we engaged in and by the changes that um, that we made. Now, I would say that doing what he did, um, the way he did it, was inappropriate and illegal. Um, there are, maybe could have gone to Congress and, and, and done these kinds of things. But I think... The, he would argue that he, he tried various yeah. ways and couldn't. But um, uh, what should be done with him now? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think that he's got to make a decision. Um, you know, he's he's broken the law, in my my view. Um, he needs to, you know, get lawyers, come on back and decide, um, what, see what he wants to do, go to trial, try to cut a deal. Um, I think there has to be a consequence for what he has done. Um, but I think, you know, in deciding what an appropriate sentence um, should be, I think a judge could take into account um, the usefulness of having had that national that national debate. But you think he, he, he will still serve time? Oh, I think he should. I mean, I think he harmed American interests. I mean, I know I can't go into it. He would say he didn't. No, that's not true. That's simply not true. I mean, I, I know that there are ways in which um, certain of our um, agents were put at risk, relationships with other countries um, were, were harmed, our ability to um, keep the American people safe was compromised. Um, there were all kinds of redos that had to be um, had to be put in place as a result of what he did. And while those things were being done, um, we were blind in, in, in certain areas, in, in certain really critical areas. So he, what he did was not without consequence. Another offshoot of uh, the national security uh, debate has been the fact that the Justice Department uh, has filed under this administration more uh, suits against leakers uh, than uh, than past administrations. And this really jarred people because of who Barack Obama is and because he came to office uh, promising transparency. So there was this disconnect between mm -hmm. the law, between those uh, principles and these suits. Uh, what do you say to those who say, this was an abrogation uh, of of principle, and that in fact it had a chilling effect on, uh, or could have a chilling effect on on not just whistleblowers, but on how uh, these things are covered. Because you filed suit against reporters as well. Yeah, I mean we indictments. Well, we never no, we didn't charge any reporters with any criminal offenses, um, but we brought charges against people who had um, broken oaths to keep things um, secret. You know, I, I think, you know, people say more than any other administration in history. Well, I think we brought a total of five or six. We inherited one or two. Um, so I think you have to keep just the raw number um, in mind and understand also that we brought five or six, whatever the number, and turned away probably, you know, close to 100 that were brought to us by the intelligence community where they asked the Justice Department to investigate and to, and to prosecute. We made the decision um, not to. Now, that all that being said, um, I looked at the media guidelines that we had in place that had not been really examined for about oh, 30, 35 years or so. And we made some really substantive changes by interacting with members of the media. Um, we formed up a, a working group. And the um, changes that we th we put in place, I think, really have updated the Justice Department's views of the media and the, the, you know, the new media that we have to deal with now, you know, bloggers, podcasts, all kinds of things um, that the Justice Department is now equipped to deal with in a way that was not uh, before those guidelines as, were revised. As, as a rule, um, what guidance do you have for future attorney generals in terms of considering cases in which, like the Ryzen case and so on, which a lot of pressure is placed on reporters to, to, to uh, out their sources? Yeah, I mean, I thought that, you know, I think that I handled that one pretty well as, uh, as attorney general. You know, we... Um, 
respected ultimately. Um, Ryzen's um, concerns about revealing sources um, got from him the information that we needed, successfully prosecuted the case. And unlike you know, the way in which he compared uh, President Obama to Nixon, me to, to John Mitchell, um, I thought we handled that in an, in an appropriate way. Um, respectful, as I said, of, you know, what his unique and protected, uh, I think, role that should be protected as a reporter was, while at the same time getting the information that um, that we needed. We got to go, but I want to, you and I were talking before we uh, we started recording about our respective experiences leaving the administration yeah. and about the sort of the letdown mm-hmm. that occurs. Uh, talk about that. You're, you're practicing law now mm-hmm. and uh, ha- happily doing it, and yep. you're uh, doing a lot of other good things related to the causes that you care about, in, mm-hmm. including civil rights. Um, what was it like to leave after six years uh, this very powerful office in a very consequential time mm-hmm. and uh, wake up the next morning and uh, not have anywhere to go? Yeah. No, it's uh, I'm a person who leaves jobs pretty well. Um, this one, unlike others, was more difficult. And I went through about a two, three-month period where um, I couldn't disconnect myself from DOJ. I was looking at the newspapers every day. I was looking at the clips that they were continuing to send to me and wondering about, you know, well, how come they're not doing this? How come, no, you know, I, I, I was mm-hmm. still very much involved, uh, which is very different than other jobs that I had left, including high-level jobs within the Justice Department. And uh, I'm now in a better place where um, I can look on as an almost disinterested person at what the department is doing and some of the issues that the present attorney general is uh, is dealing with. But it took me some time. It took me, uh, for me at least, a, a surprising amount of time to get to that point. I uh, likened it to jumping off of a carousel that's going 100 miles an hour. Right, right. And all of a sudden, you're not moving at all. Right. And people in the carousel still have a lot of fun. Yeah. You know? And you're sitting there kind of like, okay. Because there was that, uh, I took about six months off. And um, I had a lot of time just to myself, to, to read, to catch up on television, to reacquaint myself with my lovely wife and family, um, things that I had kind of missed. But uh, you, there's, a, there's an adrenaline surge that you get from being in, in the mix, especially when you think that you're doing positive things. And, you know, frankly, serving a, a president who, uh, you know, I've admired and who I think history is going to be very, very kind to, to not be, to not finish out the whole thing. I'd gotten to six years. I'm the third longest serving AG, but uh, it was time for me to go. But, uh, you know, I missed it. I missed it a lot. Time for us to go too, but it's been great talking to you. Eric Holder, an old friend, happy to have you here. Congratulations on your service. All right. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you for coming to the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. I always do what you told me, Mr. (laughs) Axelrod. You know that. Well, we know that's not true, but that's okay. You're probably right not to. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 